Hi there. Uh, I'm pleased to give this uh, day's sermon. If you are watching this as opposed to me live in person, that means that I have woken up with a fever, uh, much like my wife has. And uh, this video is intended to uh, help you all not get sick with whatever we have caught at conference. <laughs> um, so without further ado, um, let us jump into our sermon. In the show Prison Break, there is a supporting character named C-Note, who's a member of the United States Army. He's excellent at smuggling things to members of the military in Iraq. Now, while C-Note is definitely guilty of this crime, he also has his own moral code. As the episode Brothers Keeper conveys, C-Note, or Sergeant Benjamin Miles Franklin, is a witness to the terrible crime of illegal torture of several detainees. So he does what he thinks is right and reports it to the higher-ups. The thing about C-Note is that also he's also smuggling things to the very people he's reporting abuse to, his commanding officer. And his commanding officer asks C-Note how far he's actually willing to take this report. C-Note responds by saying, all the way to the top. Now, upon hearing this, C-Note's commanding officer calls in two military MPs, uh, one of which is incredibly handsome. And before C-Note can do anything else, the two MPs card him off screen. In case you are wondering, uh, th or this, I should say, uh, was my one second of fame on the TV screen on the show Prison Break. <laughs> Season 1, episode 16, if you're interested. In the scene from Prison Break, the commanding officer or CO is probably afraid of the truth that C-Note is bringing forward. In part because it probably implicates himself. But the CEO says something even more interesting in their discussion. Are you aware this could jeopardize our men over here, leading our enemies to do the same to our people? In this, CEO, in this scene, the CEO is utilizing his power to quiet C-note, tarnish his reputation, and ultimately keep himself clean of any wrongdoing. He's definitely doing something legal, but not moral. In our lesson from Acts, we have a similar story, but with different details. The apostles, unlike C-Note, have done nothing wrong in our eyes. But for a moment, let's put on the shoes of the Sanhedrin, this ruling group of Jews, and try to see things through their eyes. The, C, uh, the Sanhedrin have been lifelong devout Jews. They've been trained by Jewish teachers before them, leaders who have passed down the mantle of leadership to them and discipled them. They live in Jerusalem. They have done their best to toe the line in their lives between being faithful members of their community while also working with Herod to rebuild the temple. And the temple, mind you, has long been the place that the Jews believed God lived, much like the tabernacle before it. The Sanhedrin were the guardians of the Orthodox Jewish faith, the house of God, and the Jewish culture at large. They were in part responsible for the Jewish people keeping their culture and ethnic identity, resisting Rome's attempts to Hellenize them, to make this people 
like them. These are people who felt a very acute sense of ownership of this building and took their positions very seriously. But now, these upstart disciples of just another dead prophet proclaiming himself to be the Messiah continued to be a thorn in the side of the Sanhedrin. Spreading teachings and proclaiming God has talked to them when the only way that the Lord would speak to them would surely be in the temple through or to us. Why couldn't they just get with the program? Couldn't they see that the Sanhedrin knew best? And now these new teachings from the disciples of that Jesus were tearing apart this community that they've struggled so hard to keep together. We don't need to learn from them. They need to come and learn from us. We hold the keys of the kingdom about how to pass on the faith's tradition. The Sanhedrin were raised in the faith and trusted with this institution they paid their dues, put in their time. They went to Sunday school every week and were active in this community of faith. These young believers are now coming in saying that the Lord has spoken to them. The impudence. What time have they put in? What education have they received? Whose mark of approval do they have? And so they did what people do. They used the resources at their disposal to do their best to quiet the movement for good motives. I mean, not every member of the Sanhedrin was a mustache twirling villain, hell bent on amassing power and control for its own sake. They were doing it to protect the institution, to protect the faith. Acts 5, 28. Oops. Uh, pardon me as I'm also playing producer. <laughs> Acts 5, 28. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Their response is essentially, can't you see, Peter? Your teaching is filling Jerusalem and tearing apart our community. Sound familiar? With a better understanding of the Sanhedrin, and where they're at mentally, let's read the apostles' response to them again. Acts 5, 29-32. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than any human authority. The God of our ancestors raised up Jesus, whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him as his right hand as leader and savior that he might give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. This is a stunning answer from the upstart disciples. First off, they claim they're being more obedient to God than the Sanhedrin. Second, they outright accuse the Sanhedrin of murder. Third, they are proclaiming that Jesus is the king of the Jews and through him and not the law is the repentance and forgiveness of sins. 
Finally, they are explicitly claiming that God's Holy Spirit is with them and implicitly saying that he's not in the very temple that the Sanhedrin are so zealously guarding. The next verse sums up their answer better than I ever could. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. I remember a time when I was in Lampasas, and it was when I was a youth director underneath George. And I remember we got to talking about uh, the youth program and, you know, what I'm teaching and things of that nature. And I remember a specific conversation that we had in the kitchen of Lampasas. We were sitting down. I want to say we were eating ice cream or some type of snack. Um, and I was telling George um, very zealously. Uh, very full, of, not full of myself, but very confidently that every single lesson I had uh, at youth had to give a walk to faith, had to give an invitation into the, had to have like the five steps to how you became a Christian. I was so convinced that this was the case. In fact, I remember specifically telling him, George, what if this is the only time I get a chance to communicate the gospel message to these kids? And to this day, I remember George's answer to me because it enraged me. He said, well, Chris, first we got to worry about that Messiah complex he got there. I was cut <laughs> and I stumbled to defend myself. But in my heart, it was the truth and something I needed to hear. Because when I look back at this story with George, I see a common thread between myself and with the Sanhedrin. Because I too felt the weight of expectation to continue the faith in a certain way. What I perceived as the right way. And maybe you do as well in your own regard. But here's the thing about that moment I had with George. Or the Sanhedrin with the Apostles' teaching. As provocative as those moments were, it was needed. And for me personally, it was freeing. For myself, it was a foundational change for how I approached youth ministry. It opened up the gates to needed repentance, growth, and a reliance on God to fill in the gaps. And it really made me realize that I can preach as much as I want, but at the end of the day, it's the Lord who turns hearts, not myself. For the Sanhedrin, it is even more astounding God literally breaks the apostles out of a physical jail and they end up in front of the Sanhedrin trying to break them out of the mental and spiritual jail therein. God uses these fresh young disciples to try and teach a new way to these old men who have crucified his own son. Even in this moment, God gives the Sanhedrin a second chance to come to know him. That is a whole other sermon in and of itself. But the Bible is rife with examples of God using people who seem hardly qualified to challenge those in a place of spiritual influence and power. God uses the young boy Samuel to challenge the priest Eli in 1 Samuel 2-3. God uses left-handed women 
those born of low caste and children of prostitutes in the book of Judges. God uses the young boy David to challenge the mighty King Saul and the rest of 1 Samuel. God uses the lowly prophet Nathan to challenge the mighty King David. God uses the stuttering Moses to challenge the Pharaoh of Egypt who is considered a god. God uses the wandering crazy John the Baptist to challenge the religious authorities and King Herod. And finally, God uses young upstart wannabe rabbis to challenge the ruling caste of Sanhedrins. And today, well, oops, sorry. And today, God speaks through my children to challenge me. He speaks through them in every promise I don't want to keep. Every time my own negative self-reflection becomes dominant and Noah gives me a hug and tells me he loves me. Or, in the childlike wonder they still have at the Lord's creation. When I'm so jaded and believe I've seen it all. Indeed, the Holy Spirit is alive and well in them. And so it begs the question, in what ways are we like the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees in the scripture? Or are we so advanced that we do not fall into the same traps that befall the giants and the faith that came before us? I will remind you that even Peter faltered at after Pentecost. The Apostle Paul recounts a story in Galatians 2, 11 through 14. And keep in mind, this is after this is after Peter challenging and standing up to the Jews and the scripture we're focusing on today. Keep in mind, this is Paul speaking uh, to the people in Galatia. When Peter came to Antioch, oh, let me get that scripture for you guys. When Peter came to Antioch, I told him face to face that he was wrong. He used to eat with Gentile followers of the Lord until James sent some Jewish followers. Peter was afraid of the Jews and soon stopped eating with Gentiles. He and others hid their true feelings so well that even Barnabas was fooled. But when I saw they were not really obeying the truth that is the, in the good news, I corrected Peter in front of everyone and said, Peter, you're, you are a Jew, but you live like a Gentile. So how can you force Gentiles to live like the Jews? Even Peter the rock upon which Jesus built the church faltered and screwed up. I want to be clear that the point of this sermon is not making you feel guilty, but it is clear God desires repentance, even from his most devout followers. God does not think we're qualified on behalf of our rules, our qualifications, our investments, our age, our standing, or any of the other countless ways in which we try to justify ourselves in his eyes. What the Lord cares about is repentance, acknowledging our sin and running to him for the cure. As the author, historian, and theologian Dr. Jamar Tisby states, history teaches that there can be no reconciliation without repentance. There can be no repentance without confession, and there can be no confession without truth. And to be clear, this is not for you to just acknowledge your brother's sin. Worry about the plank in your own eye first. Matthew 7, 3 through 5. Am I right? Confession requires us being honest about our brokenness before God. 
It requires the courage to name the sins in our life that we dare not repeat aloud for fear of acknowledging they're actually real. It means being honest about our theft, our violence, our adultery, our gossip, our slander, our lies, our despair, our doubt, or the ways in which we have harmed people in the name of God and our ability to continue doing it. Confession requires shining a light into the darkness of our souls and revealing the ugliness for what it is and not trying to sugarcoat it. And here's the thing. If we cannot summon the courage to see our sins for what they are, God is clear throughout Scripture. He'll find people like the apostles who have the courage to repent. He will replace the Sanhedrin who dare speak in his name, yet practice a faith devoid of repentance, love, and truth. In fact, Gamaliel offers this very truth to the Sanhedrin, and I believe it has an excellent application in regards to the specific topic of repentance that we're speaking to today and to the larger question of the church schism our own denomination is going through. Acts 5, 35 through 39. Let me get the scripture for you guys. Fellow Israelites, consider carefully what you propose to do to these men. For some time ago, Thaddeus rose up claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. But he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and disappeared. And after him, Judas the Galilean rose up at the time of the census and got people to follow him. He also perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. Because of this plan, of this undertaking, if it is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. In that case, you may even be found fighting against God. So, fellow Sanhedrin, and I mean that because I see the, their sin in me as well. We're all at a crossroads, much like those who came in the faith before us. We can hear the life-giving call of Jesus, but to receive this life, to truly hear and live out the gospel, it necessitates a laying down of the ways in which we qualify and justify ourselves before God. Like the rich man, we must leave and follow him. The God of the universe does not care how long you've been a Methodist. See the Pharisees. He does not care about your positions of importance. See the Sanhedrin or King Herod. He does not care about the quantity of money that you've donated to his church. See the widow with two pennies. He's not bought with flowery language. See the false prophets. He is not moved by our force of arms. See Pharaoh. As 1 Samuel 16, 7 says, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And the Lord looks at your heart. In fact, he already sees it. 
He just wants you to be honest about it. Confess it. Repent it. And run to his son who yearns to free us from it. Let us pray. Father God, we come before you and we give you thanks. We give you thanks for your son. Who to his dying breath reached out to your people. Even Pilate was given a second chance. Even Judas was offered communion. Even Peter was redeemed after his cowardice and betrayal. Even the Sanhedrin were given a second chance to hear the gospel. I pray, O Lord God, that we hear the gospel today. We hear your words. That we do the hard work of looking at the sin inside of all of us. The brokenness to which we brought to our relationships, to the church, to our families, to our friends. And I pray, O Father God, that you would help us to see it for what it is. To name it for what it is to confess it for what it is and to repent of it so that we might be freed from it through your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Be with us, O Lord God. It is a long and arduous journey and we need you. And in your name we pray. Amen.